Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 570 of the podcast and it's Friday the 20th of August 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to David Crissinger on Stories Are What Save Us, a survivor's guide to writing about trauma, which is really about understanding what pain and trauma is on a personal level and the fact that it's different for everyone, as well as thoughts on writing these difficult topics uh, in our work. Whether it's your trauma or your characters, we all have difficult times and writing can help you and others. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, Jane Friedman has an article on the value of book distribution is often misunderstood by authors, which tackles the discussion on whether you do a print run, which is you pay up front for a load of books to be printed, then warehoused, then shipped to various locations to be sold, or use print on demand. Uh, Jane says you get the most important distribution of all by simply having your book available for sale at Amazon through KDP Print. She says even traditional publishers sell 60 to 70 percent of their books through Amazon. And of course, this is US centric. (laughs) So although it's probably true in the UK as well now, but, you know, it might not be true in the rest of the world. For self-publishers, it's about 90 percent of print sold through Amazon. Jane says, while I don't advocate a distribution strategy that's all about Amazon, you can succeed with one. So personally, it's a really interesting uh, article from Jane. She's always interesting, janefriedman.com. Jane basically talks about whether the obsession with getting a print run or getting into physical bookstores is worth, <laughs> it's worth the energy, basically. Personally, I choose to do print on demand with KDP Print, but I also use Ingram Spark to be wide with print because then you can do the discounts you need for getting into bookstores, libraries, universities, schools. And, you know, I make decent money from Ingram Spark print on demand every month. So I'm very happy with that. I am considering a print run for a special project at some point, but not for my bread and butter print sales, because essentially it's it's like a different business model to do a print run and then arrange distribution to bookstores and all of this. And yes, some uh, super indies are achieving that, but it's you have to really focus on making that business model work and you have to decide what you want to do. So as Jane says, Be honest with yourself about the need for a print run if you're considering it. Print on demand is much less risky for first time authors or those without certain demand. To add to that, only the very top selling indie authors invest in print runs because they have distribution ready to go and a budget to spend. If you do invest in a print run, know where and how those copies are going to sell. If you're banking on the publishing service provider or hybrid publisher to sell those books for you through distribution, you may have a sad story to tell in the near future. And it's funny because I have one of those sad stories back in 2008 when I did my first book, which at the time was called How to Enjoy Your Job or Find a New One. I did a print run and I did 2,000 books. Oh, 
Oh, I, I cringe now to think about that. And uh, there's a picture of me standing in front of all these boxes in my living room. And shortly after, probably six months after that, they went. most of them went in the landfill. Even though I had national TV, I had uh, press uh, in newspaper things, I had speaking things. Basically, print-on-demand emerged, global business emerged, uh, Kindle emerged. All these things changed. And since then, basically since then, I have a business model that it does not rely on doing print runs. Now, as I said, I might do some special projects for my memoir, maybe the shadow book, which will be a sort of nice special run, limited edition print product. But my bread and butter will always be print on demand. It is fantastic. And in fact, there's a video of me on YouTube talking about how print on demand changed my life. And uh, basically, you can have print books available anywhere in the world. So even if you want to do a print run in your territory, it's not going to be your answer to global sales. Maybe you want to do one in the US for US sales, but what about someone uh, in Australia who wants to buy your book? So even if you want to do a physical print run, then still do print-on-demand edition as well for those people who will buy from different countries. So I think that's interesting. It is a very different business model and you need a business plan in place for to make print runs work for your books. And those indies that I've seen doing this, for example, A.G. Riddle, Jerry Riddle has been doing this for years. Louise Ross here in the UK and Adam Croft here in the UK. And I don't know if Mark, I think Mark Dawson might be doing it, but he's partnering with a publishing company as well for, for print. So yeah, I mean, you just need to have a different business model if you want to do print runs and distribution and follow the physical bookstore and traditional publishing model or focus on print on demand, which actually more and more traditional publishers are doing anyway. So there we go. Interesting article from Jane, which generally, if Jane writes an article, it means people are asking these questions. So good. There we go. Links in the show notes as ever. Also, the new publishing standard covers the acquisition of Workman Publishing by Hachette. More consolidation in a shrinking number of massive publishers. <laughs> Mark from the new publishing standard says, Pre-2020, a publisher's backlist wouldn't have been a selling point. And backlist is not a keyword a savvy CEO would ever dream of saying out loud. But this is 2021. The pandemic has come and not yet gone. And the new normal is one where backlist matters. And uh, it no that for workmen publishing, 70 to 80% of their sales are backlist in many of their imprints. So that's really interesting. I actually had an email uh, question this week from an author who was despairing about sales on her single book. She has one book, it was about a year old, and she wondered whether she should focus on marketing to bring that one book back to life or concentrate on writing more. And of course, you can always spend time and money boosting an older book, get a new cover, change the blurb, put some ads on it, get some podcast interviews, do some entertaining book talk video if you're into that kind of thing. But those sales will be short-lived and you have to keep driving them. And the amount of money you can make is actually very small because as we know, the profit on a single ebook sale or a single print book sale is small. Book sales rely on volume. And if you find a customer, they can only buy one book because you only have one book. 
Now, the reason it gets easier and easier over time to make money as an author and in publishing, if you own IP <laughs> or if you buy IP like Hachette's doing there, the, the reason is because it's backlist for books and also for content marketing. And I talk about this in your author business plan in terms of building an ecosystem where everything links together. Your books, your marketing, your email list, your author brand all work together so that when someone finds you somehow, they discover all this backlist. And that's how you make money for the long term. You you don't just have the one book. You don't just throw everything at that one book. You have a backlist. You have more than one book. So this used to drive me nuts a decade ago. And I know it's so annoying if you're just starting out. I heard Bob Mayer, Dean Wesley Smith, Chris Rush talk about this. But when you think, oh, well, I only have one book or I only have three books. That's How can you say that? That's so annoying. This took me forever. <laughs> But you have to have a longer term view, which is, I know, one of my soapbox topics. You can probably hear me in your head harping on about this. But essentially, Hachette just bought this company, Workman, in order to pick up their backlist. <laughs> They're literally 70 to 80% of many of their imprints are backlist sales. And they are essentially buying the intellectual property to make money off those assets. And Dean Wesley Smith has a, a great book called The Magic Bakery, which goes into this. So if you think about your bookstore, your virtual bookstore as a bakery, no one's going to come back to your bakery if you only have one pie. It can be a really good pie, but if you only have one pie, there's not much that people can spend on it. It's easy to put in your head this sort of bakery. But Hachette just bought this massive bakery full of backless pieces that people will go and buy things from. And Dean's point is you need to have lots of things in your bakery so that when people come, they will, uh, your boutique bakery as such, that you they will find some really lovely things they like and they'll buy lots more of it. <laughs> so we are all building our own boutique bakeries, creatives, but we need inventory. We need backlist. So if you find yourself obsessing over one book, think, okay, if I'm in this for the long term, how do I build a backlist that I'm proud of, a creative body of work that I am proud of creatively and also that sustains me financially? And as I said, it does get easier because every time you have a promotion, you promote one book, then your other books, but new people discover your other books. So for example, I've got a book bub on Tree of Life, which is book 11 in my Arcane series that's coming up in a couple of weeks time. And essentially new people will discover my whole series during that spike week of marketing and some of them will stick around. And because I have a backlist, I'll be able to make more money than just the whatever 30 cents off a 99p 99 cent special. So there you go. Backlist, magic bakery, <laughs> intellectual property assets. These are all important words for your future. Oh, I should say on content marketing, it also gets easier too. So obviously this is whatever it is, episode 570 of this podcast. Now, when I started, no one was listening. Literally nobody listened to my podcast for at least six months. And then it was a couple of people. And then it was a few more. And then it took five years before podcasting really went big. And now it's sustainable and, and great. And it's part of my business. But you have to think long term because nothing works right off the back. You need to stick around. And in fact, this is another message. The most successful authors are the ones who've pretty much stuck around. <laughs> 
and kept creating while everyone else fell away. There you go. So in my personal update, I am now racing towards the end of the first draft of Tomb of Relics. Now I know it's a novella and I don't have to come up with all this extra stuff, which is a relief. (laughs) It's much, much easier now. Uh, I've also been this week working on the final edits and print formatting for The Relaxed Author coming 18th of September. I've been working on a books and travel episode about London, which is super hard because London is massive and my feelings about London are pretty complex. Uh, Also bits and bobs of writing what will be the pilgrimage book. And to be honest, I was thinking this week, I'm usually incredibly good about starting a project, pushing through the project, finishing the project, and then moving on to the next project. But what's happening with these more personal things, and I talk a bit about it in the discussion with David um, about trauma and and writing journals and things. What I'm doing is kind of plumbing some depth. (laughs) Plumbing some depth. Now, there is some depth in my novels where I've written experiences that have happened to me into my fiction, but I haven't written it as me. I've written it through the eyes of Morgan Sierra or Jamie Brooke or different um, in Risen Gods, for example. You know, there's bits of me in all my novels. But to write memoir, to write the pilgrimage book, also the shadow book, which I opened again this week and started to look at, or another book, I'm kind of trying to figure out where various pieces of writing fit and it's almost like I won't be able to do any single one of those books without finishing a draft of another book so I feel like I've got a lot of open loops at the moment um I'm more all over the place than perhaps I've ever been in terms of writing but I feel like these personal memoir books are a big exercise in wrangling your brain, wrangling your memory, wrangling your emotions, and I need to work out where things go. So at some point, I will end up with some really interesting work, (laughs) which will see the light of day. But in the meantime, I've got starting energy on different things. I've got pushing through energy and some finishing energy also needed. And it feels a bit creativey chaos, and that's okay. Sometimes we're in that uh, messy middle as such. But I know I'll have at least two book, two more books out by the end of the year and some more um, episodes on books and travel and some other writing. And so hopefully that encourages you. If you're feeling a bit all over the place, then it's sort of sit down, concentrate on one project at a time, even if you're doing different projects on different days. That's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. It's like, OK, I can get this out the way because it's the relaxed author and we're near the end. I need to get my first draft done on Tomb of Relics. And then in between, I'm doing these bits and bobs of other things. So, yeah, interesting times. But hey, it's what keeps us doing this. <laughs> keeps us writing because it's always interesting you think you have learned something about writing and then you try and do something else and you realize you're learning all over again and you're stretching yourself and that's important I I definitely feel I need to stretch myself so there we go hope that helps you so thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week uh, Marion says world building is one of my favorite parts on the craft of fiction and I have embraced it as part of my author's voice in my Cambia novels. I do believe that world building is relevant for both genre and literary fiction. The best stories on either side of that fence can attest to the power of world building as an essential story element. 
Uh, I agree with Angeline that the best world building in a story is shown through characters and how they relax to the it, how they react in that world. But there should be a mixture of showing and telling with world building. Absolutely glad you enjoyed it, Marion. And oh yeah, finally I thought this was funny. Uh, Crystal's imagination at writer streamer on Twitter said every time I go to the creative pen to get caught up on the podcast, I end up opening ten new tabs. <laughs> Because the show is full of good stuff. Uh, Yes. So basically, I wanted to remind you guys that there are show notes. There are links in the show notes to all the things that I talk about. And hopefully that's useful to you. And if you want to share the podcast, obviously you can share through your app, whatever your app is. But you can also share directly from the website, thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast and find the episode. Or if it's this week, it's on the blog page. So hopefully that helps. All right, so today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, which I use for all my books, fiction and non-fiction, and will use for my memoir. In fact, uh, I ran the relaxed author through it again last week, and I always use it as a critical part of my editing process. So Pro Writing Aid is writing and editing software that goes way beyond grammar and typo checking, although we all need that too. <laughs> It is a tool that helps fix and improve our manuscript. So I use it several times. So once I finish my self-edits before sending to my editor, because let's face it, if you hire an editor and uh, absolutely editors are fantastic, I I want my editor to focus on the big stuff. The If it's fiction, it's character arcs, it's, you know, sense of dialogue, for example. I don't want my editor to be distracted by typos or passive voice or things that I could fix myself. So yeah, I mean, you will never see the issues in your own work. So after I've done my revisions... I will use ProWritingAid again before sending to a human proofreader who again will pick up different things. So it's like having another set of eyes on the process. So why should you even consider writing software to help you? <laughs> Some people say, well, why don't you just learn all the rules and you'll be able to do it all yourself and you won't need to uh, have this software. And I'm like, well, that's kind of ridiculous because that's not my job. My job is not remembering how to use commas. <laughs> Seriously, I can if I can use software to find my comma issues or my M dashes and N dashes and all the things that we, even things like random spacing and uh, passive voice again is a big one for all of us. All these things are useful if you have a tool to help pick them up. And I would much rather have a tool pick them up than have it get noticed in my uh, reviews. (laughs) It has lots of different suggestions for improvement, including sentence length, variation and complexity, which is something early stage writers often get wrong. I still remember this sort of, you know, how every sentence has the same uh, rhythm to it. It's something I've learned a lot more about with writing for audio. Uh, Adverbs, repeated words, commas, as I mentioned, and typos for the specific type of English you write in. For example, I'm British. I use British English, but I write with American English. So even my mum, who is tech phobic, loves pro writing aid. And uh, she uses a lot of dictation as Penny Appleton and writes very enthusiastically with exclamation marks. So pro writing aid helps uh, her make her manuscript (laughs) into much more of a format that her editor is happy to get uh, rather than fixing all her enthusiasm with uh, punctuation. 
The other thing is that ProWritingAid works with Scrivener. So I open my Scrivener file in ProWritingAid and go through each of the chapters that way, which saved me a lot of time, saves me a lot of time because I used to use Grammarly and I used to copy and paste each chapter in. And this uh, really is fantastic. So you can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link ProWritingAid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. So that's ProWritingAid.com forward slash Joanna. This corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show and my in-between episodes is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks and to all of you who've been supporting the show for months and years. You're all fantastic. Uh, Joe, thanks to Johanna Frank this week, new patron. And as I said, thanks to everyone supporting the show with just a couple of dollars or euros or GBP or Canadian dollars a month, less than a coffee a month or a couple of coffees if you're feeling generous, you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio which I will be sending out sometime in the next week. You can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. David Crissinger is an award-winning non-fiction author and teaches writing at the University of Chicago. His latest book is Stories Are What Save Us, a survivor's guide to writing about trauma. So welcome, David. Well, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Yeah, it was I, I sometimes joke that I'm I'm about a million miles from where I thought I was going to be when I started college because I I went to uh, college initially to be either a, like a wildlife or a forest manager, <laughs> and oh. I, I even got certified to fight wildland forest fires. And for whatever reason, I just kind of realized halfway through that it was more of a an interest or a hobby. It wasn't really a passion. And there were so many students that I was in classes with who I knew I was going to have to compete someday for a job and they were going to, they were going to win. And so I, I tried to think of, well, what, what do I really, what do I think I can be the best at? You know, what can I, what can I put everything into? And I settled on art and history so I, I did 3D art and, and focused on modern American and European history and wrote lots of papers, obviously, in college. And, and it was my sophomore year that I took a historical methods course, so actually doing you know historical research. And that's where I, I think I really caught the writing bug. Um, I started to see history as this story that people told, right, that was based on evidence and interviews and dozens of other kinds of records. And it was a way of people making sense of something. And there, there was just something about that that really connected with me. And so I, I decided I wanted to be a history professor. And I graduated from college right as the Great Recession was starting and <laughs> turned out to be a pretty bad year to apply to graduate programs. I got in uh, to the University of Chicago did my master's uh, degree and then had a heart to heart with an advisor who said, I think the academic job market's not coming back and you should really think of doing something else. And I had no plan B, but he suggested I start looking for jobs in the federal government, maybe in like public policy 
a lot of social science folks end up in that sort of route. And, and that's what landed me at the, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, which is basically the research department, the evaluation department for Congress, and wrote a lot of reports and testimonies and had to really learn how to, how to connect with an audience with a reader that doesn't have the same expertise or the same experience that the researchers have and started doing my own writing. And it's been a very serendipitous journey to writing and, and not something I intended to do uh, from an early age. I think that's fascinating. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned history as a story. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's also what we're what we're talking about in terms of what survivor means and what trauma means and what our mm-hmm. writing is, because when we write, our our writing's only ever from one perspective. But as you say, we are uh connecting with an audience. So I can see how your various interests have have come together, uh, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. But let's get into the topic of the book because I think the word trauma, particularly at this time in history is mm-hmm. a, a quite a difficult word. And I mean, uh, I, when people say trauma, it has sort of very heavy connotations, maybe mm-hmm. a very bad injury or experience of war. But how can the experience of what is traumatic differ between people, especially in, in these times? Sure. I, I think it was actually, it was 2017, I think, the dictionary.com labeled trauma as the word of the year. That was um, that was something, at least in the United States, that was starting to get a lot more attention. And when I set out to write this book, it was one of those things where it just like the timing just kind of lined up in a really odd way. And, and trust me, I would not have wished a pandemic <laughs> to try to help <laughs> with, uh, with book sales here. But I mean, I think the idea that we've all experienced something that is on that scale of trauma, right? Now, there there are things that are undeniably clinically, by definition, traumatic. Like you, you mentioned combat, uh, you know, people who survive sexual assaults, natural disasters, the, these situations where your life is really at risk. And then there are, on the other side of that scale, there are experiences where you know, let's say I behaved in a way that I'm not proud of, or something kind of outside of my control happened to me that changed the course of my life or helped me to see the world in a different way. Not everyone's going to call that trauma. And so I try to be pretty clear in the beginning of the book that it's it's not really my job um, as a teacher, and, it, and it's not really a reader's job to say like, oh, that wasn't traumatic, or that doesn't matter because it's not as bad as this other thing. There's this really famous quote from uh, Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor and a, and a psychotherapist, and, and he said, trauma behaves much like, ga- like a gas. So if you were to um, pump gas into a, a box. It doesn't matter how big that box is. The gas is going to expand to fill the space. And that's what trauma does too. And so if it's something that sort of knocked you off the course of your life or something that makes you feel less whole than you used to feel, then to me, that's, that's the sign that, okay, there's a story there. There's a story that when you're ready to tell it, other people are going to want to hear. I think this is so important. And I was reading your book, I was reflecting on this because I almost feel like, uh, and I felt this several times during the pandemic. It's like, I'm having a really difficult time right now, but 
my life is very good compared to other people. So I feel guilty about labeling this in any way bad for me. And I say that because I feel like a lot of writers have the same experience or a lot of people have the same experience, which is, oh, what's happened to me isn't as bad as what's happened to X other person. And even different people who go through a similar experience, someone might come out of that traumatized and another person can just write it off as not a a big deal. So this personal perspective is so key, isn't it, in terms of both your experience and also the reader's experience? That, that's exactly right. And and I would add to that, when we set out or when I set out to write a story that there's going to be some kind of, let's just call it trauma, whether it's what other people would agree is trauma or not, beside the point, you know, if I want to write about that, obviously that thing that happened or that that experience that I had is going to be central to the story, but it's not the whole story, right? And part of what I think makes personal essay writing and memoir so exciting to write and also so exciting to read is is you can sort of imagine yourself in the author's position, right? And like, well, how would I react to that if that happened to me? Or or what step would I take if if I had survived that? You, you know, there's it's almost like a like a computer simulation as you're reading it. And so when I read a, a memoir, I'm not there to be voyeuristic of of someone's trauma. And in fact, that sometimes makes me feel quite uncomfortable as a reader. If I'm, if I'm starting to feel voyeuristic, what I'm looking for in those stories is, okay, how did this person change, right? How, how did they react to this situation? What did they learn? How are they different? And that's really where some of the ideas from this book came from, or, you know, what were the kind of stories that resonated with me? And lots of times it was that there was a point to them, right? There was a reason why the person was sharing that story more than to say, you know, here's what happened, which lots of times that is, that's a very appropriate thing to do, especially when you are documenting real traumatic events. It's incredibly important to say, here's what happened. But when we're talking about these kind of personal essays, memoirs, I think the thing that keeps the reader engaged is, is, okay, what did you learn from that? Yeah. So from the perspective of the person writing, so forget about publication and readers, we can talk about them in a minute, but in terms of just writing, why is writing about trauma a helpful thing? And how can we write about these dark times and difficult times without going through more suffering or, or even drowning in, in these memories? One of the most prolific researchers and writers about this topic uh, has this rule that he calls the freakout rule, which is any time that you want to express yourself in writing, if you start to feel that panic or that that wave of depression, that freakout, that's a signal from your body that you're just probably not ready to do that that kind of writing, and you should listen to it. the The way that I sometimes explain this to students is it's sort of like exercise there, right? If, if there's a little bit of burn, then you know, you're doing it right. But if it's painful, you need to stop, right? You're, that means you're doing something that's not good for your body. And so sometimes it's just a matter of kind of figuring out, well, what experience or what thing do you want to write about that you've got a little distance from, you have a little perspective, you can approach it from, from different vantage points that can be a really good topic to start writing about in the style that I that I teach in this book. 
the research that's been done on, on these sorts of practices, it points to a lot of different results and, and a lot of maybe potential causes for why writing can be so helpful. But some of the, the leading theories, if you will, show that by writing a story, you're bringing coherence to it. You're sort of wrapping your arms around something that seemed fragmented or, or discombobulated even, and that there's a real uh, pleasure and a, and a real benefit to being able to articulate something in a coherent way. Our brains want to do that naturally, and sometimes trauma impacts the brain's ability to do that. And so forcing yourself to kind of wrap your arms around it can be really, really helpful. There's also, you know, I think it was Joan Didion who said, I need to write to understand what I think about something. I know that's true for me as well, that sitting down to write a story helps me work through, well, what do I really think about that? And how did I feel at that moment? And and what, what, why was I feeling that way? Did it have something to do with the relationship that I had with that person? Is there something unexplored that I haven't thought about? And maybe I need to start thinking about, right? It's using writing almost as a way to, to get ideas out onto the page. And again, to, to kind of make sense of it. And then there's just the, the the idea. And I, I think this is true as well of kind of just unloading that emotional burden onto the page, even if it's momentary, right? I, I know when I write something down, whether it's in a Word document or, or in a journal, I know it's there and I know I don't have to like constantly be thinking about it anymore or trying to rem- remind myself of it. So I think there's kind of a, a psychic weight loss that also happens with this kind of writing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And as, as you were talking now, I, th- I think there's often a mode of, a person's preferred expression and obviously you're a writer I'm a writer people listening are generally writers <laughs> uh, as this is a podcast for, for writers but I feel like sometimes people say oh you could go to therapy or you know the talking therapy and I'm like well do you know what I don't really talk my issues mm-hmm. I write my issues and I mean uh, I uh, my first husband this was over a decade ago I'm fully happily second marriage now but my first husband um, left me and I have a whole load of journals from that time and I read them and I don't even recognize the person in those mm-hmm. journals it's as you say it all comes out on the page and then after it was about a year you know I closed the last book on that and it doesn't hurt now to look mm-hmm. back and yet when I open one of those journals I'm like whoa who is that person so that kind of writing this down and I haven't published any of those by the way they're all just journals but it, it is almost a preferred mode and if someone wants to talk or someone wants to create art or someone wants to dance or however you express your feelings and work through that and yeah some people it, it's writing I think that's totally true. I, I'm curious when you go back and read some of those things, do you do you feel very differently than the feelings that you put on the page or or are those still kind of close anyway? No, they're they're like another person, as in I okay. read them yeah. and I can't believe that I I can see it's my handwriting, but right. I can't even access that, you know, all the 
kind of self-destructive stuff and let's say hate and uh, mm. things, terrible poetry, all the things that I wrote down then, uh, I almost, it's almost like I exorcised it onto the page and by putting it there, it exists there, not in my head. And I feel like it was very healing for me to do that. And of course, you know, divorce is incredibly common thing. Like my parents got divorced and I feel that they were traumatized by that experience, whereas I don't feel I'm traumatized because I almost dealt with it by writing, which is why it's so powerful. That's that's so interesting. I, I feel very similarly when I go back to read things. I, I have that that thought of who who was I when I <laughs> yeah. was feeling this way. And I had a therapist once who who told me about this this mental trick, I guess you could call it. And and I want to say that she called it the fives or the five questions or something like that, where She said, when you're feeling these really intense feelings, ask yourself, is this going to matter in five minutes? Is it going to matter in five hours? Is it going to matter in five days? Right. And you just keep going. Maybe five years is where where you cut it off. And and that can sometimes, you know, give you enough perspective to say like, okay, I had a really, really bad morning, but this probably isn't going to matter in a few days. And just to get that perspective. And sometimes I think it's helpful to do that with the the subject matter of the things I want to write about is, you know, is this something that that has still affecting me, you know, more than five years after it happened? That might be an indication that I need to work through it, right? It, that it's big enough. It's, it has enough of an effect on my day-to-day life that, that I haven't buried it. I haven't made sense of it. I haven't wrapped my arms around it. Whereas when you're in that moment and you're thinking, oh, this is, all this rage is pouring out onto the page and this is like, this feels so good. And, and someone should read this, right. Mm-hmm. And it's, well, are you sure that you're going to want someone to be able to read that five years from now? And this is actually something uh, Angie Ricketts and I, Angie wrote the afterward for my book. This is something her and I talk about all the time that her memoir, she sold a proposal for the memoir and the publisher had it in their mind that th- that this book had to come out of at a very very specific time to hit the book club uh, list creation time, and there was also uh, a TV show that was very popular that was kind of related to the same topic, and they wanted to have that available at the same time. And so she ended up having to write the memoir in three months, and she spent the first two months like panicking about it, <laughs> and and then finally in the last month really sat down to to write it and and her memoir is written in present tense because she had all the journals and the diaries from all the years that she was writing about and so the book has this immediacy to it and this um kind of it's unfolding before your face um right you know sort of impact on the reader and now when we talk she says the same thing you did oh i read that and i don't even know who that person was and so i asked her kind of a similar question of well, do you wish you maybe wouldn't have put it out into the world? And she said, no, absolutely not. Because what that book does is it gives this snapshot of who she was as a person at that time. And the fact that she doesn't feel like that person anymore is a sign that the writing did something for her. It helped her get past some of those things and and look at them in a different way. And she also said there you know, are things in her book that maybe she would rewrite now if she you know, was like doing a second edition or something. And she said that the best compliment, 
Well, let's put it this way. She said lots of people were kind of frustrated or upset about things that she wrote, but that no one called her a liar. And that was kind of the the definition of success for her at that time was to just get it out onto the page. But now if she sat down to write it, it would be a very different book. You're going to have to tell us the name of that book now. Oh, yes. So Angie's book is is called No Man's War. And Angie was married to an army officer who deployed, I believe it was nine times to Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the book is about her life as as an army wife. And it's interesting, and you mentioned the word liar there, and truth and lies and something in between, I feel is very difficult in memoir, or as you said, personal essay, because our memories are attached to emotions, and we experience something from our perspective. And I completely appreciate that my own journals about my divorce uh, are not my husband, ex-husband's perspective. But this is a question that I keep coming back to, because uh, just so you know, I've written over 30 books now, none of them are memoir. <laughs> but I, I have a kind of memoir in progress, so I think about this a lot. So does everything need to be factually true? And I guess, how can we even tell? Or can we write things that serve the story beneath the story, as you call it? So this is where my journalism friends will will probably disagree with me, but my memoir and personal essay friends will agree, right? So I think the premise itself is, is probably not exactly accurate. Like, I'm not convinced that I can write a totally objective, factually correct story. I just don't know that my human brain is capable of doing that. Because like you said, when we remember things, there are emotions tied to it. There, There are also ways that our body copes with traumatic experiences that make memories, they, they result in memories being stored in weird ways and fragmentation. And lot, there's, there's just tons of things that happen in the brain during a traumatic experience that I think having the standard of I'm going to write something that is objectively and fact-based and evidence-based and true is maybe just something that's not possible with this kind of writing. Now, I think that there's a, a freedom and a, and a kind of a beauty in, in recognizing that and sort of leaning into it for, for lack of a better phrase. So when, when I write, I, tr- I try to be very transparent about whether this is something I remembered, whether this was something based on evidence or based on a document or based on a letter, for example, or if this is something I had recorded or had preserved in some other way, I try to be transparent about where the information is coming from. And also being being careful not to put emotions onto other people or to um, try to speculate about what they are thinking or, or feeling unless there's a point to me speculating, right? To maybe show the reader that I can't read this situation. I'm not sure if this person's feeling this or feeling that. Right. And, and giving the, the reader an opportunity to collect the evidence themselves and maybe come to their own conclusion, right? It's not fun, I don't think, for the average reader to be told everything constantly. It's also, I think, pleasurable, frankly, to read something and, and know that the author is, is trusting you to come to your own conclusion or is okay with you bringing yourself to the story and, and kind of making sense of it in your own way. Now, if, if I am writing a scene, let's say, and I have no documentation except my memory, I'm going to be really clear about that. 
if it's something that I think happened or that I'm, I'm pretty sure happened or I know it happened, but I don't know the details of it. That's when I might start looking for corroborating evidence, right? So can I find a picture of the setting where this happened? Can I, that's from that, that period. Can I, can I say something factual about what things look like there? Can I find information? Let's say the scene, you know, is across the street from an ice cream shop, right? Can I then say, well, it it smelled like waffle cone, right? Well, I better make sure that place sells waffle cones, right? And so there's this kind of detective or investigative work that I actually find um, quite enjoyable as a writer where I'm searching for those sensory details and I'm searching for the essence of a place or of a person. What can we infer from someone's letters, for example, about, about how they felt or about who they were? Well, we can make those inferences and we can make those speculations but we also want to show, I think, where the evidence comes from and, and how we got to that conclusion, again, to show that we're not just making stuff up. But I think that the key is, is transparency. And then also just thinking about, well, if I wanted to write this scene, what details would I need and, and how could I find those? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, as part of writing novels, sensory detail is so critical for getting deep into a character's point of view. And you talk about in the, this in the book as sort of turning ourselves into a character in a story. But it, this, is, this is so difficult in terms of this is me. I mean, yes, you could write in first person, like I think you mentioned your friend did. But even if you do, you still have to almost create the character that is you at whatever point in your life you're writing about. So how, how can we do this? What are your tips for sort of separating ourselves enough? And how do we tell the story with this character? Well, I'll say two things. So the the first is, I, I'm sure you, you picked up on this in my own writing, but I'm pretty honest about my own failings and my own uh, shortcomings and, and character flaws. And even times where I, I regret how something happened, you know, I regret my behavior. I try to be as honest as I can about what happened, not in a defensive way, but just in a descriptive way of of showing that I'm not that reliable of a narrator, right? In in most cases. And I think a reader really appreciates seeing a narrator as flawed. This isn't a book of here are all the ways that I'm so smart and smarter than you, and you should listen to me, right? It's it's about I've made these mistakes too, or or these things have happened to me too, or I had this this bad reaction in this situation, right? So that's the first thing I think is it's important to present yourself as a three-dimensional, human, flawed, wonderful, beautiful, sometimes ugly person, right? And giving that same kind of grace and that same sort of perspective to the other characters in your book as well. And I have I have this good writing friend of mine who said, you know, you don't have to call someone a jerk in your writing. You can just describe what they do and if that is how a jerk behaves, your reader will come to that conclusion, right? You don't have to tell them someone is a jerk. And at the same time, presenting yourself, like I said, as, as the saint who, who can do no wrong is not really that interesting, I don't think. I like to see when, when people roll up their sleeves and say, here's my scar and here's how I got it. 
Now, so, that, so that's the first thing. Second thing is I'm a outline writer. I just, I, that's how my brain works. That's how I have to do it. I know that's not true for everyone. So if you're a writer who writes by the seat of your pants, this might sound uh, really awful, but for the outlining folks, I try to first understand the action in a story in, in kind of a paragraph, right? So like, this is how the story starts. Here are the ways that the tension builds. This is the big crisis moment. Here's how things get resolved. I, I, I want to have kind of that under, understanding of a story before I start writing. Then the next step is, okay, well, I have to show either myself or I have to show other people acting in this story. And so what are the things that the reader is going to want to know or that, that they need to know about those characters to make sense of what's happening in the story or to make sense of the action that the character takes? So the example I use in the book is um, a friend of mine wrote a book about a trip that I went on with him. And in the first few pages of the chapter where he introduces me, he mentions my weight three separate times. And so <laughs> I, I played I played football in college. I'm a bigger guy. Uh, I'm 6'4", about 250 some pounds. And he makes this comment about three different times in the beginning of the chapter. And when I read it, I thought, why is he doing this? Like, I am more than just my body weight, right? And then towards the end of the chapter, right, he has this climactic scene where we're in the middle of this really terrible storm that could have really ended the trip. And I had to drag our canoe that was full of supplies, about 500 pounds worth of supplies. I had to pull it sort of straight up the side of a hill. And so when I asked him, why did you keep bringing up my weight? He said, well, I wanted people to believe that you could actually do that, that you could pull this canoe up the side of a hill. And I felt like if I didn't stress that you're a big, strong guy, then people wouldn't believe it or they would doubt my claim. So, so it's sort of a, almost like a reverse engineering, right? It's like, well, I want to show how this person acted. Well, why do I think they did that? And what are the details that I can present about them? What are the little vignettes that I can present? What are the anecdotes that maybe will help explain this behavior just a little bit to the reader? And that's where I'm going to start is figuring out what are those little quirks, those little things about the character that you can sort of see this when you're, when you're a seasoned storyteller, you see this in movies and TV and stories where you learn this detail about someone and you think, oh, this is going to come back. This is going to come back at some point, right? This is a clue of how they're going to behave later. Those are the the sorts of things I look for. And then, you know, then it's a matter of of making sure that that re, that character, whether it's yourself or someone else, is a real like three dimensional character, and that that they're not all good, they're not all bad, and there are a bunch of stuff in between. But th- this is what's so hard, I think, with memoir and story, because, I mean, I create a novel and I'm a discovery writer, by the way. I much prefer the term discovery writer. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I like- <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely use it. We're trying to change the language away from seat of the pants or pantser, <laughs> which is just such a, a terrible word and very American, because, of course, uh, pants is underwear here in, in England. Oh, <laughs> uh, OK. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, back to the difficulty, which is when I write a novel, I create a character that fits my plot or my narrative, like how, why did this bad person do the bad thing, like blow up the world or whatever. And it's easy 
to choose the vignette to support my story. But like you're talking there about, you mentioned sort of grace for the other other characters, but we can't write three-dimensional characters for everyone in this book. So for example, your example with your, your weight or your build in your friend's book, it wasn't about you. The book wasn't about you. So that was one mm-hmm. detail that didn't encapsulate your entire self. Now, mm-hmm. one of the things, I get a lot of emails from people writing memoir, people worried about either getting sued if they've written something that could be taken the wrong way by people in in a serious way or just damaging friendships or relationships by taking a particular point of view so let's say you were actually offended about comments about your size and then you just didn't talk to that friend anymore or whatever so you can see especially in these times where people get quite wound up (laughs) on social media let's say so what are your thoughts on this sort of concern and how do we portray other characters especially with trauma because these are going to be difficult relationships i i struggle with this and and so i don't want to present myself as the expert who's got it all figured out but but i can share maybe some of the the influences (laughs) that Mm. think about so one, there's this great writer, uh, American writer named William Zinzer, who who wrote a book uh, called On Writing Well. And he makes this point about memoir where he says, let's say you write your story and your sister gets really upset about it. You can tell her that she can write her own memoir if she doesn't like it. Right. So there's that kind of like, this is my story and I don't care what you think about it sort of approach. That, that feels to my Midwestern sensibilities, that feels like really aggressive and mean. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so then there's the, the other side of the spectrum is only writing things that people find flattering or that they would be happy or, or at least not upset about the world knowing. And I do think that there are times in which it, it does pay to give that kind of deference to a character. So for example, when I'm doing a more kind of journalistic piece and I'm writing about someone and I am not a character in the piece, this is a story completely about them. I will run the story by them. I won't send them the story uh, so that they can read it word for word. I will read it to them either on Zoom or, or on a phone and I'll read the details that are about them. And I always say my the the reason i'm i'm calling here is because i want to make sure that there's nothing factually inaccurate about what i'm saying but at the same time i'd want you to know that like i get to decide if like how this affects the story right so if i then start saying okay here's this scene where i i talk about how you did x and the person might say well that's not exactly how i felt what i really thought was this that might be something I will, de- you know, I definitely want to change that because I don't want to mischaracterize how they felt. Now, if I make a judgment about the person and they say, well, I don't like that judgment, then that, that means not something I will change unless they can give me, you know, information that would change my mind about the judgment. Now, when I'm writing about myself and there are other characters um, in the book or in the story that I'm related to or that, that I'm friends with or that I teach or whatever the the relationship is, I always try to make sure that the story is from my perspective, that I'm not trying to tell their story in my story. And so I want to present things from my vantage point, from my, my perspective. And then 
it's, it's from there, I want to try to figure out what were they thinking? What were they feeling? I think the only way to really do that, if, if the person's living, of course, is to interview them and to ask those questions. And I've done that with several members of my family. There are lots of stories in the book from my family. Um, and I had questions and I asked for answers and I probed for details and I asked them to describe things. And that became kind of my evidence for, for the thing that I wrote. Now, I know that there are, there are big differences in like libel laws between the UK and, and the US. I want to say that that's much more of a concern in the UK. And so I'm, I don't want to advise anyone on legal uh, you know, precedent for what they can say. But I, I try to use that, that criteria that Angie told me about, which is, you know, someone might be upset with me, but as long as they don't think I lied, right? That's the thing that, that I'm looking for. So then the other question you have to ask is, you know, how important is, is the relationship to you? There, there are, I think, reasons to write about people, you know, sort of in a way where it's like, well, if you wanted me to write a better story about you, you should have treated me better, <laughs> right? If you wanted to be the hero in my story, then you should have been the hero in my story. So I would never suggest that someone should sort of gloss over or sugarcoat someone's flaws just because that would upset them, right? Because at the end of the day, it's really your story and you trying to understand what you went through and then trying to communicate that with other people so that they can understand too. And like I said, if you present a character for who they are, you know, the reader will come to that conclusion on their own and it will feel more natural and, and less, less of an attack. And for lack of a better word, it's sort of like, well, this is what happened. And this is how I felt about it. And there are times then where you might want to incorporate what other people were thinking and feeling and, and times when you might not want to. And that's, that's really, I think, totally up, up to the writer to make that decision. And so I, I guess to sum up, I, I don't necessarily have rules that I follow, but I, I try to listen to the feeling I get when I'm writing something. And if I start to feel like, oh, they're not going to like this, then I want to interrogate that, right? Why aren't they going to like it? Is it because I'm being too harsh or is it because this is really embarrassing for them and they know it? okay, well, if it's really embarrassing for them and they know it and they've tried to make amends or apologize, well, how can I put that into the story? Right? How can I give this context that would leave a reader thinking, wow, that was a really difficult situation, but it sounds like they're in a better place, right? If that's, mm-hmm. that's the case. If it's not, you know, I don't invent that, right? Don't try to invent a resolution when there isn't one. Sometimes, stories don't really end, right? They just, another story begins. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, memoir never ends, I think, until we're dead. (laughs) Right? Oh, for sure. (laughs) There's always another book. So that was fantastic. David, tell us where people can find you and your book and everything you do online. Oh, thank you so much. So I have a website, davidchrisinger.com. You can find all my latest stuff there, uh, upcoming events, other books I've written, articles, what have you. In terms of buying the book, obviously there's Amazon. In the United States, IndieBound.com is a great resource as well. You can buy books from your local uh, bookstores. That's the best way to find it. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, David. That was great. 
All right. Thank you. So I hope you found that interview with David interesting and useful for your own writing. Whether it's your trauma or your characters, we all go through difficult times and writing can help. So next week, I'm talking about narrative design in the gaming industry with Edwin McRae. This is a fascinating topic as... What's different about gaming is you have to write storytelling that can go in all these different directions. So if you're inside a game and the character chooses this, the story will go off in one direction and then you have to write all these different uh, branching paths. And this is fascinating to me as a discovery writer because, of course, you have to be a hell of a plotter to do that kind of thing. And this will become more important as we move toward Web 3.0, the experience economy, different ways of storytelling in the metaverse, which I sort of started to discuss in episode 568 for more on that. Uh, So interesting stuff coming up next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.